0: Today's scripture reading is from James 4 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ.
1: Thanks again, Matthew. Appreciate that. He did that twice this morning. Been a long morning for him. Hello, everybody. Happy spring time. It's exciting to uh, see the atmosphere changing outside. Hopefully seasonal affective disorder is dying away as things get brighter and brighter and brighter. Uh, outside, and uh, it's great to have you inside uh, today on this beautiful morning to continue our, our series in, in the book of James, which we're calling The Ethics of Grace. And the title of today's message is The Love Sick Bride of a Loving God. Uh, we are a people who are made for love, and we're sick so we need a loving God. That's basically the summary of what I'm about to say. But depending on your outlook, James chapter 4 is either going to strike you as an offensive insult or as a flattering compliment. Uh, when he says in verse 4, you adulterous people, you know, we get the image of sort of the Pollyanna preacher standing in the pulpit that's, you know, elevated 15 feet above the people looking down in scorn and judgment, you know, at first blush, words like this, they feel accusatory, they feel condemning, they feel uh, contradictory to to the grace of God. And yet, if we go to the original language, which is really, really important, this phrase, you adulterous people, is literally a feminine expression of the word adulteress adulteress james is conjuring a dominant metaphor from all of the scriptures and that is the metaphor that suggests that god wants to relate to us chiefly in terms of a romance you know the bible presents god as the husband to his people and the people as the bride Song of Solomon is bedroom poetry that that, that points to the romance that God desires with His people. Isaiah 62 talks about how as the bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so the Lord your God rejoices over you. Revelation 19 and 21, picture a wedding feast that we're all destined to to, to be part of and and that this feast in front of us signifies and, and serves as an appetizer for that feast. And it talks about the, the, the bride of Christ, the church, the people of God, beautifully dressed for Jesus, being united to Him forever. So John Eldridge, in, in his book, The Sacred Romance, talks about this dynamic, this interplay, this dance between God and his people when he says, our relationship with God is like a romance. God is always wooing us with unparalleled beauty, intriguing relationship, and wonderful adventure, but we often reject his advances in order to pursue other things, find self-fulfillment, and seek other lovers who we think will make us happy. So, in light of this romantic advance that, that, is, that is signified by, by the jealous love of God that yearns for us, it says, I want to interact with three questions. Who are the lovers that the adulteress in us is, is ch- are, are, are chasing after, and how can we leave these lovers, and why should we leave them? So first, who are they? James hints at who they are when… and and at what they are when he talks in verse 1 about passions, which comes from the Greek word hedone, and we get our word hedonism from this. Hedonism is the relentless pursuit of self-gratification without respect for potential consequences or effect on others or, in this instance, on intimacy with God. He he then talks in verse 2 about desires, and of course… We know from other places in Scripture that that desires are actually good and God-given things in and of themselves. The Psalms say that that, that to the degree that we delight ourselves in God, He will give us these holy, beautiful, healthy desires of the heart. So, desire is a good thing. But but again, if you go back to the Greek, the the full meaning of the word is over-desires. Desires gone a little bit wild. What he's pointing out here is idolatry. Idolatry is when we take the good things that God has created in the form of people, in the form of places, in the form of things, we, we take something good and we turn it into something ultimate. We take something besides Jesus and, and turn it into our Jesus, into our functional Lord and Savior. We plug our umbilical cords into it in order that it would give us life. We try to fill our emotional love tank with something other than God. You get the picture. So, the adulteress in us, and this is what James is after, the adulteress in us is lured into the forbidden bedroom by potentially many things, career, money, recognition, fitting into certain social circles physical health, the feeling of comfort, the feeling of being in control of of the world around us and of the people around us. I mean, you can fill in the blank with just about anything. And the tricky part of of the anatomy of idolatry is this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, you know, the people and the places and things that, 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 that God created, and He looked back on everything that He created, and He said, behold, it is all very good, supremely good God's creation is, and so, our hearts are, 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 are tricky because, because it's very easy to say, well, this is a, a… career is a good thing. Or, you know, financial stability, it's a good thing. The arts are a good thing. Romance is a good thing. God created things. And so, maybe we could think of it this way. Say that you've got a husband and a wife, and the wife has a best friend. They grew up together, uh, the wife and, and her best friend did, and, you know, they've lived life alongside each other for many years. Uh, they've been there to support one another in the hard times. They've been there to cheer for one another in the, in the, the times of success and in the times of accomplishment. Uh, they've self-disclosed, the, you know, their, their innermost thoughts to each other. They've been there for each other. And then, This good thing, the the best friend, the closest friend, gets in bed with the husband. Instantly, in that moment, the best friend becomes the worst enemy because of infidelity, because of the reordering of a hierarchy of loves that should not be. And so, when James says… Anyone who has a friendship with the world, by the way, the world was created beautiful and lovely and wonderful and very good, but anyone who is in friendship, or to carry his metaphor of adulteress into this sentence, anybody who's in bed with the world becomes an enemy of God because, in verse 5, God yearns jealously that our spirits be exclusively His, uh, and, and that our spirits be intertwined with His holy and healthy Spirit. You know, the moment that my relationship with money starts to set the terms for my relationship with God is the moment that money becomes an issue. Yeah, you know, but as long as God and my relationship with God is setting the terms for my relationship with money, everything's in its healthy place. And then put, put in the place of money, you know, a person that you love or, or a career that you're pursuing or, or you know, a, a grade point average that, that's a goal for you, whatever it is, as long as our relationship with God sets the terms for our relationship with those things, it's all beautiful and it can all be called very good. But when the hierarchy of those loves is reversed and something starts to dictate and and, and determine our relationship with God rather than the other way around, that's when we've gotten into bed with it. What are some diagnostic questions that we can ask in order to discern uh, whether or not infidelity is an issue with us? One is, you know, one diagnostic question is to look where it is that we covet. Verse 2, James talks about how we covet. You know, what are our must Haves the, the, the wants in our lives, the legitimate wants in our lives that we've turned into a non-negotiable need. What are we afraid of the most? That if we lost this thing or that if we lost this person, it would actually uh, rob us of the desire to live. We would melt down. We wouldn't just be sad, we would be wrecked. You know, like, like Job's wife, we would curse God and, and just want to die where do we spend our time and our money with the least amount of effort? What are our primary shame sources? What, what, what failures of ours or potential failures would make us feel worthless? And then we've we, we got to ask the deeper question, what, what am I forfeiting? What am I relinquishing? What, what am I losing by my failure that, that causes me to self-loathe? And whatever that thing is, is a potential spiritual mistress. Where does my mind share go when, when things are quiet, when when I'm laying awake at night with insomnia preoccupied? So, that's the diagnostic question number one. What do I covet? What, what's my innermost desire? And then the second thing to look at that James mentions is our anger. Verses one and following, he talks about how quarrels and fights and, and war and murder and murderous intent are, are happening among the people of God. So, last night um, see Drew and Mary Trapnell. There you are. Uh, last night, got to, to be at a, uh, a dinner that the, the, the Trapnells and, and, and a few others of you were, were a part of with uh, Dan Allender, who's a, a, an author and uh, is, a, is a counselor and, and really specializes in, in helping people cultivate a, he- a healthy marriage dynamic. And, and here's one of the things that he said last night that I wrote down. He said, when people do not give us what we want, we make people pay. That's what's going on. That's that's the dynamic James is describing. When, When the people in front of you aren't giving you what you want, what your heart demands, what you covet the most, what you've turned into your functional Jesus, when people around you don't give you that, Allender says, you will make them pay. And so we have to look at our anger. We have to look at our anger toward others, toward ourselves, toward God to get to the bottom of our own. Adulterous nature. So, our anger toward others, I'll never forget, this has stuck with me, you know, ever since I first heard it when when, uh, we were in New York and Tim Keller was talking about the nature and psychology and anatomy of of child abuse and of spousal abuse, whether verbal or, or physical. And he said that abuse happens not because you love this person too little, but because you love them too much. In other words, if you abuse your children, verbally or otherwise, it's because you've reversed the flow of the umbilical cord and you're depending on them, you're demanding that they be your life source. You become needy for them instead of serving their needs as a parent is called to do. So, it's not that we love too little, it's that we love too much. It, it's that legitimate and beautiful and lovely desires become over desires, and we end up, end up punishing the people around us. And then the other is to look at our anger toward ourselves. I, I think this is really the origin of, of every kind of self loathing. We self loathe because we've failed at, at, at our own standard. We, we, we self loathe, we loathe ourselves, we punish ourselves. Whenever we fail our own idols, whenever we do something or say something that that, that causes that thing that we look to as our ultimate thing to be threatened or to be lost. Yeah, I'll tell you what keeps me up at night. It's second-guessing what I said the Sunday before in a sermon. I wonder if I wonder if this phrase is going to be misinterpreted. I wish, I wish, wish, wish. This is a big source of shame for me sometimes. Not all the time, but, you know, three, four times a year I'm like, gosh, I wish I didn't say it that way because it's going to be taken over here when I really meant it to be over here. Uh, and and I, I lay awake just sort of shaming myself for the risk that I took of being misunderstood by phrasing something in a way that I wish I could take back and phrase it another way. And then there's my recurring nightmare. You want to hear what it is? This is the one that happens more than any other nightmares. And I don't have a lot of nightmares. I don't remember a lot of my dreams. But the one I do remember is is the one where I'm about to get up and speak to a crowd. Sometimes it's this crowd. Sometimes it's another crowd. And it's 30 seconds before I, I, I get up behind, you know, whatever podium on whatever stage to speak. And I realize 30 seconds before I'm supposed to speak that, oh, my goodness, I didn't prepare anything. And 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 so those 30 seconds are spent and and it feels more like 20 minutes in the dream. That 30 seconds feels like 20 minutes of scrambling everywhere to you know to patch up the righteousness that I'm about to lose uh, by by you know by getting it together so that I can appear that that I have it together by by putting together a swift outline and so on, and it's a scramble dream, and then I wake up and I'm sweating, and I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. Uh, Thank you that the sermon is already written uh, in truth and reality. Don't you love waking up from nightmares? But what do these point to? What these point to is this. My idol is to be esteemed for my work. Can you relate to that? Is there anybody in here that can relate to to wanting to be esteemed for your work so much that if you lost the esteem of the people around you, it would crush you? It would cause you to scramble restlessly. And then there's our anger toward God. It's stunning. The the chapter in John, John chapter 11, where Jesus walks up to a tomb where where a guy has been buried dead for four days, and he says, get up, and and the guy, Lazarus, gets up. He comes out. He's alive again after being dead for four days, and it says that the scribes and Pharisees, this is the next section of Scripture, in response to what Jesus does in calling a dead man back to life, the scribes and Pharisees got together to plot how they would kill him. What? What? Why? Because his ascending popularity, the good gossip that's happening about Jesus, you know, the guy who can walk on water and and, and make a blind man see and now make a dead man rise up and walk. His reputation is, is going like this. The attention and the spotlight on him is going like this, which means the spotlight on us. We've been the privileged ones up to this point. We've been the one who call, ones who call the shots. We've been the ones with all the esteem of, of the culture around us, and now it's Him. We've got to get rid of Him. It is amazing what will happen when somebody, even when somebody else's success starts to mess with our own idolatries. You know, they say that a dog is a man's best friend. And I, I think that statement should actually be revised. A dog is your best friend when you're giving the dog what the dog wants. But you try to take something from the dog that the dog thinks that the dog needs. I mean, we… Patty and I have lucked out with dogs. We have had two dogs in our marriage, and they are both the most saintly dogs that have ever lived. But, but the first dog, I can remember, his name is Max… You know, if, I'm convinced if somebody were to walk up to Max and kick him in the teeth, he would smile at you and tell you that he loves you. But I'm walking him one day, I'm walking him one day and, 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 and he goes after something in the grass, and he grabs it, and I'm like, what is that? And it's a dead bird in his mouth. And so I reach in, and I'm like, give me that. And he's like, no. And, and he clamps down with his teeth. The, the only time he ever gave me the stink eye was when I was trying to get that bird out of his mouth. And I, you ever tried to hold on to a dead bird? It's disgusting. But I pull this thing out. Let this be a metaphor for how God must feel pulling the stinky stuff out of our mouths. But, but, but listen, he bit me, the most saintly dog to ever walk the face of the earth. C.S. Lewis says he's in heaven, so I believe he's in heaven. And if it weren't for this one sin, he would be sinless. But he bit me. What is it that when God says to you, give me that, you clamp down, you bite, you bite him, you bite his messengers who just tell you that God wants you to give him that? James talks about it here, quarrels, fights, war, murder, Dan Allender, when people don't give us what we want, we make them pay. If it is anything other than Jesus, that thing has become like a dead, diseased bird in your mouth. And it is an infinite mercy for God to say, all right, you're not going to let go. I'm ripping it. I'm ripping it out. You may get a feather, but that's all you're going to get. Not because I don't love you, but because I do. Not because I don't want you to thrive, but because I do. Because you see, I love you more than you love you. And when your foolishness transitions and becomes wisdom through this taking away of something, you will realize that, that I love you more than you love you. John Wayne put it this way, life is tough, and it's a lot tougher when you're stupid. (laughs) We are all stupid. Religious people are stupid. Secular people are stupid. We are all stupid clinging to dead, diseased birds because we think they'll somehow nourish us. Melville put it this way, heaven, a little bit more sophisticated version of, of John Wayne, but it makes the same point. Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending." So now that we're able to diagnose and identify the lovers, how can we leave them? Paul Simon says there are 50 ways to leave your lover. You know, slip out the backjack, make a new plan stand, don't need to be coy, Roy, hop on the bus, Gus, don't need to discuss much, you know, just listen to me, and so on. James says we don't really need 50, there are just three, three ways to leave your lovers. Number one, ask. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, and what I think he's referring to, that we don't have. We don't have the ability to stop fighting and quarreling because we don't ask. How much more, Jesus says, will the Father give the stuff you want, the dead bird in your mouth to you? No. How much more will the Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit for those who ask Him? There's that word again, Spirit, the one who wants to intertwine Himself with our spirit romantically the source of spiritual adultery is always a lack of wisdom. It it is being tethered to the idea that somehow you love yourself more than God loves you, and that you know better how your life should be going than God does. And so, James is basically taking us back to Psalm 139, where it says, search me, O God, and know my heart, test me, and see if there's any offensive way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Help me to resist and flee the devil by fleeing to you and to the everlasting way and, 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 and to the direction of, of your holy and your healthy spirit. So ask, and then after asking, surrender. You know, James says in verse 3, you, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. A husband asks his wife, hey, you know, feeling a little dry, not feeling it with you right now, so I think I want to date around. I think I want to play the field for a little bit. Just one or two people. It's not going to be like a harem or anything, just, just one or two. And of course, she's going to say, are you freaking crazy? You ask, but you ask wrongly, because you are asking me to yield my bed, our bed, to that. Not going to happen. You ask wrongly. Ask me for deeper intimacy with me. Ask me for reconciliation and renewal of us, and I'm all in. But ask wrongly, and it's going to end up hurting both of us. James is after a specific kind of ask, and it is not, God, give us what we want. It is, God, give us what you want. Have you ever studied the Lord's Prayer? Have you ever noticed how much, when when, when Jesus' disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray, teach us what good, healthy prayer is, how much of it is about God and God's desires for us, and how little it is about the stuff we want. Because Jesus is assuming that the more we are formed in the, into the image of Jesus, the more our loves are going to be the things that God loves. The things that we hate are going to be the things that God hates. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. You know, prayer has basically two purposes. One is intimacy. It's there in verse 8. Draw near to God. I'll get there in a moment. And then the second is alignment. Submit yourselves to God. The purpose of prayer is alignment, not aligning God to your will and your ways and your purposes and agenda, but aligning yourself to God's will and God's ways and God's purposes and God's agenda. I love what my friend Anderson Spickard said the other day when we were were, were talking together with a few other guys about the nature and character of God and of Jesus. And Jesus said, you know… or I'm sorry, uh, Anderson said… Anderson would resist being called Jesus. He said, you know, it had ever dawned on you that Jesus didn't come to take your side. Jesus didn't come to take your side, Jesus came to take over. And when He takes over, that's when, that's when you really discover how much He truly is on your side. So ask, surrender, and then third, fall in love again. Why? Because of what it says in verse 6, that God gives more grace or greater grace. In other words, no lover, no person, no place, no thing can love you like God does. If you fail at your work, your career will punish you and will not forgive you. If you fail at your diet, your body will punish you and shame you. If you fail at the expectations of your peers, your social rank will punish you as it declines. If you fail to time the market properly, your portfolio will punish you. If you fail to parent in a healthy, life-giving way, your children may resent you. Thank God children are among the most forgiving human beings in the world. If you fail at, at, at your calling to love inside of your marriage, your spouse may withdraw from you. But God, which brings us to the last question, why should we leave our lovers? And it's because I've already told you, silly. He gives greater grace. God is jealous when we think and behave in idolatrous and adulterous ways. And He's not jealous of us. He's not jealous of us. He's not jealous of the people, of the places, of the stuff that we get into bed with. He's not the least bit jealous of anything or anyone that He's created. He is immensely and yearningly, it says, jealous for you, for us, for the romance that Jesus, the husband, the bridegroom, died in order to secure that our souls would be intertwined with His. What, what is the love of God like? It's right there in the book of Hosea. I want to encourage you to go home and read Hosea, just a few chapters this week, to get a sense of the wildness of the love of God. Because what God does is He comes to the prophet Hosea and says, so that you can really understand me to the depths of who you are, so that you can adequately and truly and in a feeling way communicate how great my love is for my people, I want you to marry a woman named Gomer and she's going to cheat on your butt. Many, many, many times she's going to cheat on you with other guys. and when she does i want you to stay and i'm calling you into this because i want you hosea to learn what it feels like to be me you know it's 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 accounts like hosea by the way that provide the energy and the drive for a cheated on spouse to sometimes say, you know what, I'm going to go for reconciliation here. You're certainly not bound to do that scripturally if you're cheated on. That's the grounds that Jesus gives for for dissolving a marriage, is adultery. But you don't have to. And in some cases even, I've seen it over and over and again over the years, when the hurt party engages as Hosea does, and some people are called to this, some aren't, but, but, but when the hurt party engages like this, sometimes the marriage actually becomes healthier, more trusting, and more intimate than it ever was before the adultery, as a, like a visual, a living parable of Christ in the church. The other thing that he wants Hosea to know as he gets a taste of the heartache and betrayal that God feels when God's people cheat on him, is this, to, rec- to recognize, that Hosea, that your cheating wife is not only a window to me, it's also a mirror, or she is also a mirror of yourself. Sufyan Stevens wrote this song. He's an indie artist out of um, Brooklyn, and he wrote this song about the serial killer John Wayne Gacy, Jr., who was uh, famously known as the Clown Killer. Uh, and what he would do was he would go to kids' birthday parties dressed as a clown, and, and you know, over the course of time he had abducted um, multiple boys and assaulted multiple boys and men and then killed them and then buried them under the floorboards of his house in his crawl space. Twenty-seven bodies of men and boys were found under the floorboards, in the crawl space of John Wayne Gacy's house, and then others were found in the rivers, and he was eventually convicted for this. But here's the thing about Sufjan's song about John Wayne Gacy Jr. It's creepy. It's chilling. Last line of the song. He writes as a, and sings as, as, as a person who believes in Jesus, by the way. He says, in my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards to the secrets I have hid. God says to Hosea about his adulterous people, she, Israel, Will say, "'I will go after my lovers, and she shall pursue her lovers, Hosea. "'Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. "'In that day you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. "'I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. "'I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord.'" Let's sum it all up this way. "'I will turn a whore into my queen.'" I will turn Gomer into Eve again and restore her to paradise, to nakedness without shame. That's what I will do for my people. I will not give up on my bride. Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending." But Jesus, the bridegroom, He gives a greater grace. How can we possibly continue loving Him so little when He loves us this much? This is His table. Consider this the rehearsal dinner. Consider this the table of celebration. That Hosea stays married to Gomer, just like Jesus stays married to us and calls us out of all other beds back into the romance that we're made for.